time for Swordplay. Alex, an online community of atheists have produced the Skeptics Annotated Bible based on the King James Version, and which points out absurdities and boring stuff in the Bible. You trading in your New American Standard Version for a copy? Ah, Nick, will these King James Version-only people ever give up? If you're going to be a skeptic, it has to be the King James Version only, the authorized version for atheists. Come on! Well, is that what the... I don't think that's what the King James Version only people are saying. Come on! This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, the book of Judith... All right, the book of Judith is in the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha. We've covered previous books in the Apocrypha. If you look in the archives, we did an episode on Tobit. We did an episode on the additions to the book of Daniel, otherwise known as uh, Azariah and the Three Youths, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon. We do this from time to time, and so if you were looking through your Bible for the book of Judith, unless you have... Um, a Catholic Bible or a New Revised Standard, they have uh, copies that have the Apocrypha in it. Um, you're going to have trouble finding it. But uh, this is readily available. You can find it uh, uh, in lots of places online. Uh, have it if you want to follow along. It Read is, your Septuagint. <laughs> yeah, get, grab your Septuagint. Uh, it is uh, kind of lengthy, 16 chapters. Uh, but if you want to take a quick read through it, hit the pause button right here. You can do that and then come back and we're going to talk about it. And really, we're going to summarize it for you. So um, feel free to follow along in your copy of Judith as well. That's right. I thought Just, we might start with a quick refresher. On, yeah. Yeah. So, Alex, remind us, what is the Apocrypha? Yeah. Protestants call these books apocryphal writings. Apocrypha is... Uh, uh, I think it's Latin, it means hidden, but our Catholic friends call them deuterocanonical, and that means alongside the canon. And so they put these alongside the canon of the, of the Old Testament. These books are found, uh, as far as textual transmission goes, in our oldest codexes of the church. And since the first century church used the Septuagint alongside their New Testament, uh, the Septuagint contained these books, and so Septuagint has the Apocrypha, it has the deuterocanonical books like the one we're going to look at today, the book of Judith. And speaking of textual transmission, uh, this particular book, because it's not like all the Apocrypha books were always transmitted together and nicely grouped like we have them today. No, each book has its own channel of textual transmission. So for the book of Judith, we only have it through the Septuagint. And our most reliable copies come from Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and there are some other minor codexes or, or manuscripts. And the differences between each copy is pretty pretty minor. Uh, we have no original Hebrew copies, just way later Hebrew copies that were actually copies from the Greek version of Judith. And so it, the Judith may have been originally composed in Greek. Mm. And people have noticed there are a lot of Hebraisms in this story, but they're Hebraisms found not in the Masoretic text, but in the Septuagint. So most people have concluded that this has to be written before the end of the first century AD, since first Clement, one of the apostolic fathers, he quotes and refers to Judith. So there's your quick intro to uh, the background for 
the text behind the book of Judith. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and dive in here and start working through the book of Judith for a little bit, Alex. And uh, why don't you kick off and uh, start us into the book of Judith? Yeah, so chapter 1 starts out saying that in the 12th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, now historically the 12th year would have been 593 B.C., uh, but as we're going to see in the story, a lot of these dates and places and names um, are either fictional or anachronistic or intentionally wrong. Like, there's no way people wouldn't recognize the error <laughs> contained within the story. So it must be intentional, but... Nebuchadnezzar is called right off the bat king of Assyria as opposed to king of Babylon. It says that he's ruling from Nineveh, which his father, Nabopolassar, had already destroyed in 612 BC. So that doesn't mm. make sense. Womp womp. And it says that he is at war with Arphaxad, king of the Medes, at Ecbatana. Ecbatana, one of the cities of the Medes. But there's no historical source that says King Nebuchadnezzar ever warred with. Arphaxad, or any kings of the Medes, actually. So the story says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Assyrians at Nineveh, he's wanting to wage war against Arphaxad and take him down at Ecbatana, this huge fortress, you know, that's huge, huge fortress. So he calls upon all the people to come join him in war, and many of the forces join him, mostly the eastern forces. They join with the Chaldeans, that's another word for Babylonians, and the Western forces, they did not rally with Nebuchadnezzar. And so they send his messengers away in shame and disgrace. And so Nebuchadnezzar vows that they will pay the price for... Next time, Gadget. <laughs> <Yeah>. Next time. <laughs> Is that the claw from <laughs> Inspector Gadget? That's it. That was a good one. <laughs> so Nebuchadnezzar, he defeats Arphaxed in his 17th year, which again, historically is 588. BC, but this is not historical. And that's the end of chapter one. Chapter two says in the 18th year, then he starts his revenge campaign <laughs> and he sends out his general, General Holofernes. And he says, uh, prepare earth and water for all these nations. There's a couple things behind that. Basically, there's going to be so many corpses, it's going to fill their brooks and rivers and land. And the phrase prepare earth and water, that's also a phrase coined by famous Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC. And that's when he was describing a subjugated people uh, having to give up everything that they owned, all their possessions, land and water, to their conqueror. So we have influences here from Herodotus being shown within the story. But back to the narrative. Holofernes, he makes his way down to the river and the brooks where cities are usually built. He works his way through the west, conquering and pillaging everything, and that's the end of chapter 2. So in chapter 3, some of the cities that have yet to be destroyed, they see everything that's happening, they give up, and they say, listen, everything is that's ours is yours, we'll be your slaves, and we'll even join the armies, we'll send our strong men to be your allies and auxiliary units in, in your war campaign. And then all of the idols, all of the statues and temples of these peoples they're broken down and they are cleared out of the land in preparation for the worship of only king nebuchadnezzar daniel chapter three anyone <laughs> so lots of touch points here lots of this is like a collage it's like a biblical historical near eastern collage just thrown together into this big fantasy story and that's chapters one through three nick what do you think 
Excellent work. Um, well done. Summarize chapters 4 through 7 for us. So it's at this point that the children of Israel who live in Judea enter the picture. They have just returned from exile. It's a Babylonian exile, probably. I think that's kind of the way this narrative is going, I suppose. Um, they've only recently rebuilt and rededicated their temple. So Joachim, the high priest in Jerusalem, he leads them in preparations for war. <clears throat> They're preparing these strategic locations. And then Joachim leads the people in prayer and penance before God. Priests, men, women, children, their animals, they all wear sackcloth and they fast and pray to God, to Yahweh. And he hears their cries and the stage is set for deliverance. So chapter 5 picks up and back over in Holofernes' camp, he hears of what the Israelites are doing. And he's surprised, but he's also angered. And so he asks his uh, advisors, what sort of people live there? And he, one of his advisors is an Ammonite leader named Achior. He recounts the history of the Hebrew people from Abraham through the Exodus, including the wanderings and then the conquest of the land. And it's at this point he notes, this is 517 of Judith, as long as they do not sin against their God, they prospered. For the God who hates iniquity is with them. So even this Ammonite leader knows the way the cookie crumbles. And so he says, what you need to do, or what we need to do is we need to invest, investigate to see whether or not Israel is slipping. Because if they're slipping, then we can conquer them. If they're not, then no dice. Well, chapter 6 picks up, and Holofernes is fuming. What god is there beside Nebuchadnezzar, he says. And that's going to set a trajectory for the rest of the book of Judith, God answering that charge. He says, their mountains will run red with blood, their plains will be filled with corpses. Oh, and as for you, Achior, um, banished, you are banished to Bethulia, first stop on the conquest tour. You're going to be destroyed with the inhabitants there. And so Achior goes to Bethulia, and the people of the city take him in take him before the city council, and he tells his story, what's going on, and they show him hospitality, and then they call on God all night. And so, as chapter 7 opens, time for siege, siege time. And the Edomites, they scheme a plot for Herlophernes to take control of the water supply of Bethulia, uh, either famine or thirst will drive the people out. Victory will come without a fight. For 34 days, they lay siege. And on the 34th day into the siege, the people of the city, they're losing heart. And so they begin to say to their leaders, let's just become slaves. But Uzziah, one of the city leaders, says, let's just do this for five more days. Give me five more days. If help doesn't come in five days, we'll do your plan and we'll become slaves. And it's at this critical point that something very interesting happens, right, Alex? Yeah, enters chapter 8, the heroine of the story, Judith. And so the first seven chapters are just the backdrop to the story, all to pave the way for the hero. So chapter 8, Judith is introduced with an impressive genealogy, no less. And she is said to have been recently widowed three years ago. She still is mourning uh, the loss of her husband. He apparently died from heat stroke, is what it sounds like, during the barley harvest. 
and she lives in mourning and fasting, except on special holy days. She is rich, she is beautiful, she is a godly woman, and she has a good reputation. And so Judith, she calls the elders uh, Uzziah and uh, what are the other ones? Kalba and Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, something like that. <laughs> and so she calls the elders and she gives them a verbal beating. <laughs> she right. chastises them for what she calls testing the Lord. By them putting a timetable on God, they are testing the Lord. And then she says, you know what? You talk about how, okay, we'll, we'll give up after five days. Listen, going into slavery will not be as bearable as you think, she reminds them, especially if they don't trust in Yahweh, because she says that he'll make it worse for you in slavery since you're supposed to be loyal to him. Her advice is to simply call upon God for help, and if it pleases him, he'll help us. She has an interesting quote here. One of her lines is, uh, you can't even plumb the depths of the mind of man. How much more, you know, are you going to try to plumb the depths of the mind of God? This is in chapter 814. Yeah. And a lot of that phrasing is very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Maybe one of the strongest touch points in the New Testament. But back to the narrative, Judith, Judith says, hey, we need to set a good example here. We need to thank God for his testing us. Just like he tested Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh tests those who draw near to him for admonition. We have some more echoes there, again, that you can see in the New Testament about being tested for admonition like a father to his son. That's Hebrews 11 and 12. Draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, O sinners. James chapter 4, verse 8. So you have definitely some influence that this had, I think, on following generations uh, Back to the story. Okay, the elders accept Judith's rebuke. They ask her to pray for rain. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> Judith is Elijah now. So <laughs> she says that she has a secret plan. She, she doesn't acknowledge the praying for rain at all. She said, nope, I have a secret plan. I will go deliver Israel myself. And so she leaves town with her maidservant, and that's chapter 8. Um, chapter 9, Judith is praying the whole time. So she offers a prayer to Yahweh. And she says, it says she times her prayer with the evening incense at the temple. This is probably important because it shows that she's a pious Jew. She knows what's going on in the temple and lines up her spiritual worship with all of Israel's spiritual worship. She appeals for her plans to succeed. She even compares her request to the slaughter of Shechem. Now, <laughs> now if, you, if you've read Genesis lately, the slaughter of Shechem was when... Uh, Simeon and Levi, sons of Jacob, they complete, they first they trick all of the people in Shechem to get circumcised because uh, their sister Dina was raped by one of the sons of Shechem. And so they want revenge. So they trick them into a false peace treaty through circumcision. And while they're sitting there healing from their wounds, they go in and they slaughter the whole place and they just burn it to the ground. This is something that Jacob curses them for. But in this story, the curse is reversed. Here, Judith is saying, yes, that was a zealous, righteous vengeance. Uh, and may you um, su succeed my plans. Make my plans succeed, just like Simeon and Levi's. It's like, whoa, wait a mm. second. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little re retelling of the story there. Anyway, the prayer continues. She wants God to bless her. Not just her plans, but her deceit. She's saying, I'm going to lie. <laughs> I want you to bless my lie. I want you to bless the, the words of deceit on my lips. 
And, you know, it's interesting, Nick, because um, there is a story in 1 Kings chapter 22 that might be the precedent for this because Yahweh decides that it's time for King Ahab to die. And there's a spirit that comes forth and says, I know how to do it. I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of Ahab's prophets. He'll be deceived, go into war thinking he's going to win, and then he'll die. And Yahweh says, yep, that'll work. Go do it. <laughs> so divine deceit interesting. She also mentions in this prayer that Israel is God's inheritance. That's deep Old Testament roots. We mentioned that several times before, Deuteronomy 4, 19 through 21, Deuteronomy 32, 7 and 8. She also says that Yahweh is the creator of everything, but she even says he's the creator of the waters. And I thought that was interesting because in Genesis, it says before God created anything, there was the water and the spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. So very interesting what's going on in the mind of the writer of Judith in the way Judith words her prayer. That's chapter 9. So chapter 10, Judith gets all prettied up. Dressed to kill. Yeah, she gets herself smelling good, looking good, does her hair up, puts her nice dress on. She goes out, and the elders meet her at the gate. They admire her, especially Uzziah. You almost get the feeling through the story like, ooh, Uzziah, is this going to be another Boaz and Ruth story? It's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> they open the gate for her. She goes off, her and her maidservant, and along the way they run into an Assyrian soldier. And they say, hey, we're wanting to surrender, and we want to show the general how to infiltrate Bethulia because we know that uh, Yahweh's not happy with this people right now. So she lies, and as she goes to Holofernes, this is the general, as she's brought to his tent, the crowds surround Judith, all these Assyrian soldiers, and they're admiring her beauty. They're marveling, and they become more determined to kill the Israelites because of it. They said, wow, the Israelites have such powerful weapons. They can destroy the whole world. What are these powerful weapons? They're beautiful women. <laughs> <laughs> so she meets Holofernes, bows before him, and that's chapter 10. Nick, why don't you take us off to uh, chapters 11 through 13? Yeah, so everyone's going gaga over Judith's beauty, and so Holofernes says to her, uh, hey, girl, how you doing, right? And uh, look, you know, hey, sorry this has to happen, but your people brought it on themselves, right? And look, no one's going to hurt you, though. Don't you worry. Um, so, hey, what are you doing, girl? And Judith tells him that essentially... Your advisor, Achior, he was right in what he said. Israel cannot be defeated unless they have sinned against God. But wait! Great news, Holofernes! They have sinned. They have eaten unclean food due to the siege. And there's some rich irony here that's going on uh, about how God will accomplish something through you, Holofernes. You're the guy that God's going to do some really good things through. And God has sent me to accomplish with you things that will astonish the whole world wherever people hear about it. And so Judith says that she has fled when she learned of the sin. God's going to do all these good things through Holofernes and through her with Holofernes. And so Holofernes, with those who are around him, all those people going gaga over Judith's beauty, they're like, hubba, hubba, girl with beauty and a brain, right? Literally, they say, no other woman from one end of the earth to the other looks so beautiful and speaks so wisely. And so chapter 12 picks up. 
And Holofernes invites Judith to dinner, but she declines. She chooses to eat some kosher foods that she had brought with her. And he allows her to to do that and to come and go as she pleases. What she's doing here is she is uh, working on her escape plan. And she does come and go as she pleases, and she goes and engages in ritual purity bathing and prayer. On the fourth day uh, of Judith being in, in the camp of Holofernes, Holofernes is ready to seduce Judith. And... He prepares a banquet for her, and she dresses in, quote, all her women's finery, verse 15 says. And so when Judith enters the room, Holofernes, he's just burning with passion for her, and he is ready to seduce her. He invites her to get drunk, and she's like, oh, yes. This is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> and Holofernes really lets himself go because he gets drunk as a skunk, drank more wine on that day than any other day since his birth. And chapter 13 picks up. Everyone else leaves. Judith is alone with Holofernes, who is dead drunk, stretched out on his bed. She prays a prayer for strength. She takes Holofernes' sword, his sword from the bedpost. He just hung it up there. She draws near to the bed, grabs Holofernes by the hair of the head. Give me strength today, O Lord God of Israel. And heck, heck, twice with all her might, she cuts off his head. She rolls his body off the bed, gives the head to her maidservant. And she, she puts it in their little food bag that they carried all their kosher food with. And then the two of them leave just as they'd done every other night uh, since she came to the camp, and she leaves no problem. I mean, nobody suspects a thing because, hey, just business as usual. She arrives in Bethulia, where she tells everyone what happened. She shows the head of Holofernes for evidence, and she affirms that her honor is still intact. And then here's a key verse, verse 15 to chapter 13. Yahweh has struck him down by the hand of a woman. That's right. So take us to the end of the book, Alex. All right, so chapter 14 starts this way. Judith directs the men to hand the hang the head of Holofernes on the wall. And then at daybreak, they're to go down, pretend like they're launching an attack against their enemies. And when their enemies see them, they'll get ready. They'll call the battle call. They'll get a message to Holofernes, and he'll lead them in the battle. But when they can't find them, They'll panic and they'll leave. And then the Israelites, you go down, you chase them down, you kill them. So Judith comes up with now the plan. <laughs> she's she's the general. Yeah. And she summons Achior and says, hey, remember earlier when the Assyrians dropped you off as if to die? Well, look whose head I have. <laughs> and he sees the head of General Holofernes. And he comes out, he sees the dead head. He's so moved by the story that Judith tells, by his own deliverance, that he faints to the ground. He gets circumcised, he converts on the spot, and he joins the house of Israel forever. Now, Achior is, a, is an Ammonite, and so this is interesting. We'll talk about that later. But Judith, uh, just like her plan 
uh, foretold, it now unfolds. And we see the Assyrian soldiers, they're wailing at the news of their dead general. His eunuch, Bagoas, the uh, eunuch servant of Holofernes, he's especially upset when he finds the headless body, and that's how chapter 14 ends. So chapter 15, the people of the Assyrian army, uh, they continue to do as Judas, pre Judas predicted. They f flee in all directions, and the elders of Bethulia, they send word to all the other Israelite towns and Jerusalem. They say, hey, the armies are fleeing, so pursue them, kill them. They are, they're ours now. So the Israelite soldiers, they pour out upon the Assyrians. They destroy them. They plunder the great wealth that the Assyrians brought with them. Uh, and then the high priest Jehoiakim, he and the elders of Jerusalem, they take a little journey to Bethulia to see Judith and to praise her for the victory that God brought through her. And Judith is awarded the plunder of silver found in Holofernes' tent. And then as she is carrying all of her silver back on a wagon, all the women of Israel go out to meet Judith and they start praising her and then they start singing to her and some start dancing for her. And then Judith all of a sudden comes up with these wands. These wands are like ivy wreath rods and she starts handing these wands out and then she leads them all in a dance and then all the armored men are following behind like a big improvised parade that spontaneously takes place i mean think of this as an ancient near eastern flash mob <laughs> it's, it's crazy it's like a musical or something and that's chapter 15 that's how it ends <laughs> dunna, then, dunna. that's right and then uh chapter 16 this is uh, the song of Judith that she sings, so followed by the epilogue. So she sings this song to Yahweh. It emphasizes his control over war and his ability to crush the enemies of his people. And it also emphasizes that God worked here through a woman and not the young men. It also says that he did not work through the sons of the Titans, nor the tall giants we have some parallelism going on right there the greek word for titan is is titan but that's how the septuagint translates the hebrew word rephaim and those are the giants so hmm. the interpretation that the uh the anakim and the rephaim uh, those in ancient uh past those were the greek heroes but uh in Hebrew history, those were giants and they were monsters. And so it's funny how she says, uh, oh, you didn't work through them. You didn't work through the Titans or the tall giants. She's like, well, yeah, they were evil. <laughs> so, but the emphasis here being that there was no s supernatural strength here. It was her beauty that captivated the enemy's mind. And it was the sword that severed his neck. That's my favorite line in the song. Her beauty captivated his mind, and the sword severed his neck. Yeah. <laughs> Judith ends her song praising Yahweh by saying he sends fire and worms into their flesh. That's the enemy's flesh. And they shall weep in pain forever. Now that's interesting. Mm. Fire and worms into their flesh, weep in pain forever. Where have I heard that before? Hmm, hmm. Oh, yes, this is the language Jesus uses when referring to hell. <laughs> so you go to Matthew 8.12, Mark 9.44. But is Jesus alluding to Judith? Or is Judith and Jesus alluding to Isaiah 66, verse 24? It's probably alluding to Isaiah 66. Nonetheless, you have this pervading image 
that dominated Second Temple literature makes its way into the New Testament of what hell looks like. What's that going to be? So Judith, she takes all the silver, all the spoil from Holofernes' tent. She gives it to the temple at Jerusalem in a sacrifice to God. And then the epilogue says, and this is what happened to Judith. She retires in Bethulia. She never marries again, though many wanted to marry her. She lives to the ripe old age of 105. She lives on her estate, and she gives that estate upon her death to her nearest family, both on her husband's side and her side. Israel lives in peace all the days of her life and a long time after. (laughs) And the way that she's spoken of there, especially in that epilogue, almost like they're talking about one of the judges, you know, the days before Israel had a king. And then the cycle starts again. (laughs) It's almost like we're talking about Jael and Sisera from Judges chapter 4 or Deborah from Judges chapter 5. But that's the end of the story. That's it. That's chapter 16. That's the book of Judith, Nick. (laughs) And no one messed with Israel as long as Judith was alive. (laughs) That's right. Don't mess with beautiful women. (laughs) So, Nick, now that we've got the story summarized... Now, why don't we dig into the uh, details here? How is the book of Judith laid out? Talk about the structure. Yeah, the, the book falls into two main divisions, chapters 1 through 7. That details <clears throat> the war of the Assyrians against the, uh, the Jews. Uh, and then chapters 8 through 16 highlight the deliverance of the Jews through Judith. And there are striking contrasts between those two major chunks of the book. Uh, the first part is about brute, masculine force winning battles. Nebuchadnezzar and Holofernes, that's what they're doing. The second part of the book is Judith's soft, womanly beauty, her religiosity, piety, her wiles, winning the war. Uh, Israelite men cower behind the walls of the city in chapters 4 through 6. But Judith and her maid go out and confront the enemy face-to-face, especially chapters 10 through 13. So th- that's, that's what you get with the overall structure of the book of Judith itself. Well, Nick, we alluded to it at different points along the summary, but talk about historicity. I mean, is this book historical, Nick? At first glance, I mean, it certainly reads like history, all these various detailed places, peoples, nations, names, dates. It's all there. Uh, But very quickly, from the very first verse, as you pointed out, we realize something's not right here. Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) was not the king of Assyria. Nineveh, as you said, was destroyed, 612 B.C., years before Nebuchadnezzar ever came to power. Plus, the dates are way off. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's 12th year would have been during the pre-exilic period, and yet Judith presents a story uh, in the post-exilic period. Right, right. And there are other problems. There's a 300-mile trek at one point in the story. It only takes three days to cover (laughs) that. That that doesn't work in their day, maybe in our day, not in theirs. And then locations like Put and Ludd. Those are on the other side of the Euphrates when actually they're down in Africa and they're over in Asia Minor. And finally, Bethulia, where a lot of the action takes place. Totally unknown. Yeah. Uh, Even with all of the geographical clues that are put in there, um, no one's ever been able to find that. So is it historical? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no. No, in fact, the um, points of history that it makes are so blatantly wrong right. that uh, I lean towards it has to be intentional. It has to be intentional. There's no way somebody would be fooled if this was trying to be passed off as historical, which brings me to the conclusion that in the wake of its wild popularity, I mean, it was a popular book. People accepted it for what it intentionally was, which is right. a work of fiction. Now, talk to more. Talk to us more about that, though, Nick. What do you think about the Book of Judith? My, I call it whimsical fiction. It is intended, as you said, to be understood as ironic fict- fiction from the very first verse. It would be comparable to someone beginning a story today by saying, in the time when Adolf Hitler was king of England. <laughs> All right, there's, there's this wink and this nod, which it just everybody understood. It's just a fanciful narration. Uh, it's also very heavily invested in irony. Judith is the beautiful woman, beautiful widow, and yet she chooses celibacy after her husband's death. She is childless, and yet she essentially gives spiritual rebirth to Israel. She's very wealthy, but she lives on her roof, and she fasts often. She's dainty, gorgeous, and yet brutally murders Halafernes <laughs> with his own sword. Halafernes himself is uh, an ironic character as well. He conquers many nations, and yet he cannot capture tiny Bethulia. Uh, he is intent on mastering Judith, and yet she masters him. His very sword, by which he claimed numerous victories, is used to slaughter him. And even at like a micro level with a Kyor, here's this mighty warrior, and as you pointed out, when he sees the severed head of Holofernes, he faints. Right, this mighty warrior, and yet he faints at the sight of blood. I guess I don't know. Yeah, uh, but there are other ironies, right, Alex? Yeah, some other ironies can be seen. Uh, Achior is sent to die in Bethulia, uh, but it's there where he is delivered. Right. Um, the soldier's reaction to Judas' beauty—that uh, the power of beauty to deceive the whole world—and yet they are deceived, and that's what leads to their defeat. <laughs> Uh, Judith's word about God accomplishing something through Holofernes, something amazing. Well, it's something, right? That's very vague. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> there's some irony there. It's like, yep, he sure will. <laughs> um, I, I like the theory of the story being allegory for later history. Mm. And so um, in one interpretation, Judith represents the pious Jews during the age of um, Antiochus Epiphanes, where... Uh, Greek um, acculturation is being shoved down their throats, right? And they're trying to hang on to their Jewish identity. And so what does Judith do? She avoids the food of the Gentiles. Uh, She goes through great lengths. You know, how do you maintain your honor while eating with Gentiles? Well, you bring your own kosher food. (laughs) She washes before praying. She prays in synchronized timing with temple activities. She uh, pays attention to the tithes, etc., uh, she acknowledges Israel's history of idolatry. So she is the pious you know, Jew. And Nebuchadnezzar, he would be kind of in the place of Antiochus Epiphanes. Mm. And um, the uh, vessels, it says in the story, they were recently polluted. She's like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> mm. That's what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, um, the Feast of Dedication celebrated even... By Jesus in his own day, I think 
right around John chapter 10. Um, the Feast of Dedication is about the reconsecration of the temple and the temple vessels after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated it with uh, pig blood and all kinds of other gross things. And so these are a reconsecration then. It's like, ah, kind of fits more into that time period, the Maccabean time period. And again, the army uh, that the Maccabeans thwart, uh, they are defeated after their enemy commander, Nicanor, is beheaded. It's like, well, that's interesting. You know, in Judith's story, the enemy general, Holofernes, is beheaded, and then the army is defeated. And so a lot of really convincing parallels between Judith, the fictional story told here, but the real historical story that took place um, in the Maccabean Revolt. And since this story here, Judith, is said to be written around, you know, the early first century B.C., um, that would fit the time in which, you know, people were still celebrating the legend of the Maccabeans. So that's one interesting allegory that I, I thought was worth mentioning. Nick, what other Bible connections do you see? There are, <clears throat> excuse me, several. You pointed out several as we uh, and wove them into your uh, telling, retelling of the Judah story. Uh, you mentioned Jael and Sisera uh, from Judges chapters 4 and 5. Uh, that There's definitely strong connection there. Chapter 13, verse 18, Uzziah says to Judith, Blessed are you above all women on earth, all, above all other women, which echoes very strongly with what is said to um, uh, Mary over in Luke chapter 1, 42, and um, kind of that uh, uh, blessing that's given to her. Uh, not in the Bible, although I guess it was in some Bibles back in the day. First Clement, uh, chapter 55 of First Clement, one of the early church writers, one of the guys who knew the guys who wrote the books of the New Testament, he references the Judith story in appealing to Christians. And here's the clip. Many women also, being strengthened by the grace of God, had performed numerous manly exploits. The blessed Judith, when her city was besieged, asked of the elders permission to go forth into the camp of the strangers. And exposing herself to danger, she went out for the love which she bore to her country, and people then besieged. And the Lord delivered Holofernes into the hands of a woman. Uh, also, perhaps an echo in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, where Paul has a conversation about how God uses the weak to confound the strong. Definitely the case with Judith. Here's this woman, and she takes advantage and defeats the mighty warrior general Holofernes. So... Any others, Alex? Yeah, there's a handful of others. First uh, Maccabees 7, which is another book from the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books. Um, as I mentioned before, in the Maccabean Revolt, General Nicanor is beheaded, and that's when his army falls to the Maccabees. Um, so there's a little touch point there. So the song that Judith has at the end of the book uh, has some touch points with the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, and also the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, as we mentioned, the phrase, he sends fire and worms into their flesh, and they shall weep in pain forever. Uh, that's definitely an allusion to Isaiah 66, verse 24, picked back up again in the New Testament, Matthew 8, 12, Mark 9, 44. Um, God is the 
God of the inheritance of Israel, Deuteronomy 4, 19-21, and Deuteronomy 32, 7-8. Uh, we mentioned her rebuke, you cannot plumb the depths of man, let alone the mind of God. Uh, that's 8.14 in Judith, but it's 1 Corinthians 2.10 where Paul uses very similar language. Uh, Yahweh tests those who draw near to him for admonition. It's very similar, similar to Hebrews chapter 11 and especially chapter 12, uh, James chapter 4 verse 8. Uh, didn't deliver Israel through the sons of the Titans. It's Hebrew Rephaim, which is Titan in the Septuagint. So touch points again to the Old Testament. Whoever wrote Judith knew the Old Testament really well, <laughs> especially their Greek Old Testament. Yeah. Um, the slaughter at Shechem, Genesis 34. Um, here's a non-biblical connection for you. So Herodotus, famous uh, Greek historian that we mentioned before from the 5th century B.C., not only does he coin that term of land and water, um, also he records the account of the Persian king Xerxes versus the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Mm. at a mountain pass where if you can hold that mountain pass then you can hold off an army and so uh if you've ever seen the edited version of 300 you might remember this line this is judith (laughs) 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 so nick here's a question okay judith is the heroine she's the character that exemplifies faithfulness and piety and yet, Nick, did Judith act morally, and was she blessed by God for her deception? Yeah, so Judith is a lying murderer, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, hmm. Or, or is she just like a, a female freedom fighter, a female mighty warrior? Uh, and yet, despite the lies, seduction, and murder, everyone praises Judith yep. and confesses that through Judith... God Almighty has worked a great work. Even the high priest. <laughs> yeah. Some of these difficulties you might could wiggle out of on a technicality. Uh, her oaths that she takes, they're not made to Yahweh, but to Nebuchadnezzar. They, she uh, promises, swears on his life, which would mean nothing to her, right? It's just, uh, so was her oath really an oath, right? And did she really lie when she broke it by taking down his general? Hmm. Well, I guess you could get out of that one. Nevertheless, she straight hacks a dude's head off, right? <laughs> Not a lot of wiggle room there. Um, so there's this thing called just war theory, uh, which I think could factor in here. All's fair in love and war. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, as long as it's got a just cause. Um, <laughs> Charles Reed has written a book entitled Just War, and he, he explains each of the seven principles in detail. A just war consists of seven principles. You need a just cause, proper authority, right intention, reasonable chance of success, proportionality. In other words, the good that's going to come from going to war is going to outweigh the evil that could result from not going to war. Uh, last resort, war is a last resort, and then the aim, the end of all of it is ultimately peace. Uh, suffice it to say that Israel being in wartime gave Judith some leeway under just war theory to do what she does, and I just imposed just war theory on a fictitious story, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think, Alex? Well, in the... Uh 
Introduction to the Apocrypha, uh, written by David De Silva, and that's a newer book, and so you should pick that up. It's got a lot of good updates to the other classic by Metzger, right. introdu- introducing the Apocrypha. He, uh, De Silva, has done a lot of work on the shame and honor culture of the ancient Near East and in uh, the Mediterranean, and so he filters it through that. And so he says, you know. When you look at it in terms of shame and honor, um, there are things that are morally permissible if it upholds the you know the honor of the person or the people group. And so, the greater the honor being protected, the greater leeway is allowed for whatever action protects that honor. And so, um, from you know, it would be shameful for uh, the Israelites to fall into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and to have to uh, see their God be ashamed uh, by their temple being destroyed and on and on and on. So he just filters it through that, and I thought that was kind of interesting. You have to kind of think about it for a while. I don't know. It's I mean, it's a fictitious story, and yet, I mean, we have similar moral moral dilemmas in our Bible in other Old Testament stories, and so... Sure do. Um, so yeah, good question. Good question. I don't know. <laughs> like like David eating the showbread, I guess. Yeah. Or Except yeah, I mean murder. <laughs> all kinds of things. I mean, there's some morally questionable things that uh, Esther had to do, right? Yeah. In the harem of <laughs> King Ahasuerus. Um. Mm. So skip. Don't know. Um. <laughs> don't know. It's a hard. It's uh. a hard thing. Well, Nick, let's let's move on. What else do we have? <laughs> well, so there's there's no miracles in Judith, no prophets. Uh, God doesn't speak in the book. So, Alex, talk to us a minute about why why are why is there none of that stuff in the book? Yeah, in fact, that would be reason enough to uh, say it doesn't belong in the Bible. Mm. You know, if there's no miracles, there's no prophets, there's no dialogue from God. Get it out of here. It's not canonical it's not inspired it's not scripture get it out of here and yet the same thing could be said about what we just covered in our previous podcast the book of ruth book of ruth doesn't have any miracles or prophets or dialogue from god the book of esther doesn't have any miracles or prophets or dialogue from god and in fact uh you know if we're gonna be nitpicky about the facts of history the Book of Esther has a few questionable facts as well. So, yeah. unless you're reading the Greek version, of course. So the uh, the Greek then version of really, Esther, yeah, 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 the Greek version adds uh, quite a bit in order to bring God and dialogue from God into the story, in order to bring prophecy into the story. Um, but we're not talking about the Greek Esther. So, yeah, this happens in other books of the Bible. Here's what I see: I see a book that emphasizes man's faithful action coupled with God's unseen hand. And they're asking the question, you know, if they do what they think is right for uh, the honor of Yahweh and his people and the temple, how do they know that God was with them in their actions, that they made the right choice, Nick? Hmm. And it seems like they only know after the fact. Kind of reminds us of what we just talked about in Ruth, you know, how do we know that accepting Ruth as a Moabite into the congregation of Israel was the right thing to do? And 
we kind of know after the fact <laughs> because God blesses her with a child and that child is the uh, you know ancestor of King David uh, because of the circumstances that surround Naomi and the circumstances that surround uh, the whole story and how God reverses uh, the misfortune to be a situation of blessing and fortune. So that's kind of how it's seen here. How do you know God was with Judith? Well, it's after the fact. She brought back the head of Holofernes. <laughs> so it's almost like they're encouraging Israelites to come to action, to take action, to do what they know is right, and God will be with them. Um, Judith, to me, is sort of like a combination of Jael and Deborah and Ruth and Esther all rolled into one composite person, the biblical female righteous heroine. So those are my thoughts on the content that we see in the book of Judith, Nick. Another question, though, is we have Achior, an Ammonite, convert to Israel in the book of Judith. And, you know, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, uh, and Ezra 9, verse 1, for that matter, just like we saw in the book of Ruth, no Ammonite or Moabite can ever come into the congregation of Israel. What do you think about that, Nick? Well, you know, this is whimsical fiction, so anyone can become a proselyte, <laughs> right? Adolf um, Hitler can be the king of England. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that is a possible explanation. It's just a work of fiction. But maybe it's more like what we saw in the book of Ruth um, with Ruth the Moabitess, who, even though she's a foreigner, she is permitted to join Israel since she had chosen solidarity with Yahweh. Um, that that could be um, a way of explaining the Achior, the Ammonite, converting to Israel. Uh, what say you? Yeah, I think you're right. It's just another instance of an exception being made. The biblical precedent for that is with Ruth. Uh, is the exception warranted? We asked that question when we looked through the book of Ruth. Is it warranted that she be made an exception to the rule. Uh, same here with Achior. Is it warranted? And the question is is really, it's left up to the reader to decide based on how the circumstances turn out in the story and the character of the person who becomes the convert. So it's, it's an interesting uh, technique used in the story there to get people to think about that. Nick, as we talk about canonicity, why do you think the Western church fathers treated judith as a canonical book well uh actually just about everyone counted judith as canonical you will find judith quoted in the same manner as the old testament scriptures it was in the septuagint as we talked about it's in the vulgate luther's german translation the original printing of the king james version a lot of people don't know that it was included the the whole apocrypha in fact um it also appears that the first time the apocryphal writings, Judith included, were excluded from uh, the English Bible was due primarily to an editorial decision. The editor wanted to cut down on the size and presumably cost of bulky Bibles. And so they just, uh, how do you do that? Well, we're not going to remove any of the 66 books of New Testament or Old Testament. We're going to take out the apocrypha. We can do that. Get away with that. And so... um, yeah, just about everyone counted Judith as canonical. What say you? Yeah. Well, it's funny. One of the uninten- unintentional consequences of cutting those books out is that it caused those books over the centuries to be surrounded with mystery and stigma. Right. 
and uh, ooh, those are Catholic books. Those yeah. must be bad. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, and that's how they're talked about yeah. in shows on like um, TLC and the History Channel. Books banned from the Bible, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, no, it was really pragmatic. Turns out they just wanted to print more Bibles. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. Very interesting. Um, David De Silva, in his introduction to the Apocrypha, he notes that in the East, um, that the book of Judith was considered non-canonical, especially according to Melito of Sardis, according to Origen, according to Athanasius, according to Kirill of Alexandria. And in the West, uh, Jerome, the guy who wrote the Vulgate, even though he included it in the Vulgate, Jerome treated Judith as non-canonical as well. And Yep, just about everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so it canonical. a lot of people counted it as canonical, a lot of people counted it as non-canonical. Nick, the question for us today, I want to leave hanging. Let's just riff on this for a minute. Is it possible to have a Holy Spirit-inspired work of fiction? I'm going to say yes because of the parables. Parables are made of stories, right? Um, we think primarily of the parables of Jesus. There are parables in the Old Testament as well um, that are just made up stories. I think of... Um, the one that Sam um, Nathaniel uh, Nathan tells to David in First uh, Sam Second Samuel chapter twelve, where he talks about the man with the little ewe lamb, and then another guy came and stole it and all that. It's a made up story, and yet that seemed to have a very potent Holy Spirit punch to it. David was convicted of his sin, uh, so I think there are instances where we see in the Bible that. A relatively brief work of fiction is nevertheless still inspired of the Holy Spirit. What say you? I want to say yes mm-hmm. because this book was just so well received, even well into the church age. And so my hesitation is I agree with what you're saying. Right. Um, if it does the work of the Holy Spirit, it brings conviction and action in a way that um, is good, then. Yeah, you can have a Holy Spirit-inspired work of fiction. My hesitation is that if you say an entire book is a piece of Holy Spirit-inspired fiction, I feel like that gives ammunition to people who would say that the book of Jonah is not real, that the book of Jonah is just one big inspired piece of Holy Spirit fiction. Uh, They might say that about the book of Esther or the book of Ruth or... um, any other number of Old Testament books that are not considered to be reliable or accurate. And so I'm afraid of that slippery slope, you know? I'm afraid mm-hmm. of how far down do we let people say, it's okay if you believe this is fiction as long as it accomplishes the work of God. I've heard that argument used with Jesus and the resurrection. It's okay that Jesus really wasn't resurrected from the dead. It's the story that convicts us to be better people that's important. And really, that's the work of God. And so it's like this this strange zone that people want to inhabit where they have a God, but it's not the God of a resurrected Jesus. And so I've heard this before. It's a slip. To me, it's how do you... How do you stop those <laughs> worlds it, from colliding? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a fair point. I would say in response, <clears throat> there. so when 
Jesus tells a parable or when anyone tells a parable, it's understood, right? There's an understanding, just like with Judith, right? There's, there's an understanding. It's the wink and the nod. It's, we know, right? Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the king of Assyria. There's an intentionality behind it. Whereas I think like a, the book of Jonah um, or Esther or Ruth or what have you, um, those are clearly written from, I think, from a historical perspective. It's, they are intentionally historical. And until proven otherwise, I think they need to be taken at face value as um, not fiction, but as history. So I think, for me, that would be the dividing line between um, the parables as Holy Spirit-inspired fiction, right, versus uh, these Old Testament books, which are... Um, intended to be taken as history. Yeah, I like that. So you're saying that there's an interpretive guideline that you would use and you would say, hey, if what's being told here uh, can be shown to uh, have intentional um, markers of historical error, uh, things that like would never go over somebody as, as being real, then you know what you're working with is a work of intentional fiction as opposed to you have a book here that very much is trying to be passed off as historical and has like these one or two points of contention about historicity that uh, are still being debated about is that what you're saying yes okay i think that's i think it's a fair representation um, yeah so specifically for the book of judith though where i land <laughs> it's great fiction um I don't see it, though, as Holy Spirit-inspired like the other 66 books. I know I just went off that tangent and talked about, yes, you can have Holy Spirit-inspired fiction. I think Judith is just a great work of fiction. Um, like a, I don't know, similar to a Dan Peretti or a Frank Peretti book, right? It's, it's good fiction, valuable, moral. I think Christians should read it. It's, it's a great... Uh, great story has uh, has value in that, but I'm going to lean toward not inspired. So, Nick, if the Book of Judith potentially qualifies for being a Holy Spirit inspired work of fiction, um, and was you know gathered together in the Bible of the of the first, second, third century churches then what what is your hesitation as accepting it as is it just because like going beyond the 66 in the canon is uncomfortable uh or that you feel like you'd have to accept the other books of the apocrypha in addition well so i think this is the other side of our slippery slope right um so what what then do what then gets excluded from the bible right Let's say someone produces a, a work. Let's say Frank Peretti writes a book, right? And it is, it, it could be similar to Judith. It's instructive, it's teaching, and, and all that. But it's just a work of fiction. But we say it's a Holy Spirit inspired work of fiction. Well, why wouldn't that be included with our canon, right? And I think, I think that's the other side of this is okay, what, what gets excluded if we start, if we say, okay, Judith gets included? Where, where do we where do we draw the line and say, well, Judith, but not Frank Peretti and his books, right? 
Sure. I would compare that almost to uh, like books of the pseudepigrapha, though. Um, yeah. Because if you look at the, you know, the great four uncials, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, um, Bizet, uh, Sinaiticus, these codexes, um, they contain our 66 books plus, you know, I think some of them contain First Clement, like you mentioned, for the New Testament, and also um, the Apocrypha Shepherd books. Shepherd of Hermas. and the Apocrypha books. And yet there were many more writings that it could have contained, right? Yep. There's a whole bunch of books from the Pseudepigrapha writings that could have been in there, but they weren't. There's a whole bunch of actually New Testament Pseudepigrapha writings <laughs> that could have been in there, but they weren't. And Acts so, of Paul, Acts of Peter. Yes, yep. yes. And so given that... What do you think about, then, the choice already made for us by 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Christians to include these books together in a collection worth keeping and copying and hanging on to, as opposed to the other books that they would have been probably familiar with, but they didn't put that in the collection? So what do we do uh, with that? Is that? It's almost like, um, you know, we don't have... Well, I, I can't think of a good analogy. Well, <laughs> what do you do with that? What do you do with that part? Because you have the, three. What the cent- decision already made? Yeah, you have three centuries of Christianity already including these books, and so um, the the Frank Peretti novels of their day would have been like the other uh, pseudepigrapha books that they did not include. They were like, those are interesting, those are good, like you said, the uh, the other New Testament, Old Testament pseudepigrapha books. Those are like the Frank Peretti novels. But it seems these other books, the Apocrypha, they viewed a little differently because they did keep them and combine them and put them in a single collection. What do you think? So what happens then <clears throat> after 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century when it comes to canonicity, so why aren't the books included in, in our Bibles today, um, uh, the, the Apocryphal books? What happens after, historically is you do start to see more debate about them and questions being raised about their canonicity. They're still included, um, but uh, you eventually get to a point, and, and perhaps, okay, so, um, uh, histor- so from a historical perspective, the church um, begins to question the canonicity of, of some of these books, right? And, and I think what, uh, where we end up when we get to... Uh, the 18th, <clears throat> 18th century, maybe even in the 19th century, is is a full-blown, from the Protestant branch, right, a full-blown rejection. I don't think that's healthy either, but I think that's what you see historically. There are reasons, I think, why they should be, they should not be included in the canon, just as I think there are good reasons as to why they should be read by Christians even today. So, Nick, though, you know, you mentioned the Protestant reaction, and mm-hmm. yet you and I come from the Reformation movement, you know. In the Churches of Christ, uh, you know, the motto is uh, to be like the first century church, right? And so if we want to be like the first century church, not like a, the denominations, what, you know, what do you think would be so wrong with a group wanting to be like the first century church to go ahead and use and accept the first century Bible, which would include the Apocrypha. Right. So, um, 
I don't know that I would say then that is wrong in the sense of, you know, your salvation is in jeopardy. As I said, I still think this is this is good and beneficial. I just don't think it's Holy Spirit inspired. And if someone disagrees with that, um, okay. Um, I don't think you should bind that on me as as though I need to accept it as as a uh, Holy Spirit inspired work. Um, and if you know you find it beneficial, and and that's the other thing too. These guys, so first, second, third, fourth century, you find guys who are producing sermons and homilies based on Judith. You find that even all the way into like the the time of the the Reformation, mm-hmm. guys are still writing sermons on Judith, Tobit. citing it and stuff like yeah, that. Tobit as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, <clears throat> I think there would be a lot speaking from. You know the restoration movement, and that's a dangerous thing because you know who can be the voice of that, right? <laughs> um, I think there would be a lot of our brethren who would be uncomfortable with a sermon on Judith, and certainly I wouldn't write up a sermon on Judith. Although, I mean, I've taught this, I've taught the book of Judith in our Wednesday night Bible class. One of the most well-attended Bible classes we had, by the way, was was when we talked about the Apocrypha. So beneficial, just I I can't get there. And if others can, okay, well and good. Um, but again, for me, it's the other side of the slippery slope. Then what? Where do we draw the line? How do we? What's our what's our uh, litmus test for inclusion and exclusion of? certain books because like you said there are pseudepigrapha there are new testament apocrypha right and if we're going to open the door for judith i don't know yeah i guess the uh (laughs) the litmus test that i'm sort of proposing is uh what's in the codexes and so if it's in the codexes you know the the big ones the ones we camp on for apologetics if it's in there then it's safe ground we can take it and accept it and use it and preach on it. And so from that perspective... Does that include both Old and New Testament? Yeah, so that would include First Clement First and Clement Shepherd of Hermas. Yep, okay. exactly. Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mr. Ecumenical, you just said that would be okay. <laughs> as long as I didn't bind it on you. That's right. So I like that. I, hmm, I'm going to have to keep thinking about that. I'm going to have to keep thinking about that. Good stuff. Well, the good news is we have plenty of other apocryphal books. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep circling back to it, and trying to hammer this out. And hey, we do have some interesting pseudepigrapha works as well that we want to uh, look at in the years to come. So we're going to cover it all. So there's no book that we're scared of on sword That's play. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Nick, are we going to um, get back to our uh, normal? Uh, canon schedule next week <laughs> uh yeah we'll we'll find something i don't know did we talk about what we want to do did we talk about joel no we didn't well so we'll, we'll throw some okay. things out there we'll figure it out it'll be uh, something <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to our one minute sermons i think then as well okay so we'll leave the audience today with those thoughts on the book of judith uh, leave your mind marinating a little bit on canonicity and apocrypha and all that good stuff but we do uh, want you to 
like the podcast, uh, share it, repost it with your friends on social media, leave a review. Um, any other thoughts, Nick? Did you mention the podcast? That's right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> There's an email address, isn't there? Did you mention the email address if they have questions? Yeah, send us questions at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll be sure to look those over and answer them on an episode. So tune in next time for another episode of Swordplay. Thanks for tuning in.